If Steph Curry, if we turn on the TV tonight and he drops 47 points, everyone will go, wow, that was remarkable what he just did. And it is. But to me, what's more remarkable are the thousands of hours he spent in an empty gym preparing for the ability to score 47 against NBA-level talent. It's those years, those cumulative years that he was in the gym. To me, that's what's incredible. Hmm. Certainly what he does in one night is awesome. And as a fan, I love it. But it... it, it and I say this very respectfully, it becomes less awesome and incredible when you see what was put in to making that happen. And the real awesomeness is in the, the unseen hours, as my friend Drew Hanlon coined that term. Yeah. Uh, that's what's to me is what's most impressive. Alan Stein Jr. is a high performance coach. He's a consultant, speaker, and author. And he spent 15 plus years with the greatest basketball players on the planet, from the likes of Kobe Bryant to LeBron James, Steph Curry, and Kevin Durant. And with the NBA Finals now in full swing, I felt like there was no better time to bring in an industry expert to anecdotally talk about the habits of the greatest. Moreover, we dig into their soft skills, which are shared characteristics, in fact, of industry leaders. Topics include gathering and processing feedback, positive empathy, practice strategies, leadership from coaches to players and players to coaches, and the habits and fundamentals of the best. Alan's a tremendous speaker, and he flexes that skill set on the show, packing every minute with great framework and motivation. Suiting Up is a show that explores the psychology, playbook of tools, and strategies of the most influential people in sports, entrepreneurship, and entertainment. Enjoy my interview with high-performance coach and dear friend, Alan Stein Jr. Big Al. Got you here in Baltimore with you, man. Yes, sir. Love yeah. being here, man. It's good to see you. Yeah. We've known each other for how long now? It's been a few years. Yeah. I still remember when I met you, we met in passing and Mike Jones at DeMatha introduced us. Yeah. And when you walked away, he said, do you know who that guy is? And I was, I was kind of unsure. And he said, that is the LeBron James <laughs> of lacrosse. And, and you know how the high regard that I hold Coach Jones. I mean, that's yeah. one of my favorite people on the planet. So for him to, to dole out a compliment like that, I immediately went home and started Googling you and searching you and was just was blown away. Yeah, and I've been a, an admirer, a fan, and a friend since. Yeah, that's, it's great you bring that up. I got to get Mike Jones on the show. He's a favorite of mine as well. And what an accomplished person and coach. Still at DeMatha, coaching that team, having inherited it from the great Morgan Wooten. But such a humble guy. Yeah. One thing I'll say quickly about Coach Jones, he, he's one of the finest coaches that I've met at any level in any sport. And I'm so thankful that he chooses to stay at the high school level because he makes such an impact hmm. on those young men. And, and I think lots of times people make the mistake of thinking that uh, college coaches are better than high school coaches and pro coaches are better than college coaches and better than high school coaches. And of course, in many times, that's true. But there's no doubt. I mean, Coach Jones would be an asset and any NBA franchise and with any college program. He knows basketball. He knows, uh, he knows how to hold people accountable and get the best performance out of the people he works with. And I'm just, I'm thankful he stays at high school because we need more good people leading our, our youth. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I know that I've, I've heard this. I'm not quite sure I've seen literature to back it, but I know in the European model of soccer, especially in Spain, that they focus on and they have to compensate duly uh, getting their, their best talent in way of coaches at the U13 level. Absolutely. It's a difficult thing because you have this uh, conundrum of, of the best coaches wanting to coach the best talent. Of course. Uh, but it's better for your system, for your country, especially as you develop the new talent, if you're Spanish football at, at the global stage, to yeah. get the right instruction early because habits are developed 
at that age and oftentimes really difficult to revisit and restructure. Absolutely. But I guess that's, that's the biggest challenge that we have in the States is that your, your top talent of coaches inevitably get to the top. And then in lacrosse specifically, we see this all the time. It's not really the growth that we're looking at anymore. It, the sport is being sanctioned at all levels across the country, and there's no other team sport that's being adopted at a quicker rate, right. participatory speaking, than lacrosse. But you have to then supplement in way of a technical sport like lacrosse the right coaches. Yes. Because young kids turn over. They pick up a stick. They pass it. It goes in the ground. I'm done with this game. Exactly. You need to have that foundation in place and you need to plant the seed early. So, yeah. And that's probably one slight advantage maybe with a basketball or soccer over lacrosse at the moment is it's, it's being taught earlier. I mean, obviously guys yeah. like you are changing that, which is what's needed to be made. But yeah, the foundation is so important. What, what about your foundation? You, you only play basketball or do you play other sports? I played everything. Yeah. I did everything from BMX biking and skateboarding to martial arts to all of the conventional sports. Yeah. I loved everything, and I, yet I always came back to basketball. Huh. I tried and dabbled in everything, and for some reason, basketball was always the one that, that I came back to. There was something about the individual side of the sport where I could work on my game myself to improve, but then doing that in order to be a part of something bigger than myself, to be able to contribute to the other four guys in the same color jersey. So there was always something, you know, I found really neat about that. You know, uh, baseball and football to an extent are harder to practice skills by yourself yep. in, in many cases. So basketball is something I could go out in my driveway and work on my handle, work on my shot, and then later that night go to practice and implement that stuff in with the rest of the team. Were you always – backyard in the driveway working on your skill was that an intrinsically motivated thing that you were doing or at what time did that begin for you that's a question that I get from parents all the time and most of their children are out there because they're being told to go out there yeah and there are certainly distractions now with media and tech that you and I didn't have to deal with growing up but would you say that's the biggest piece for younger kids to get out and practice has to be from within. For sure. And, and as a parent myself now, and, and I've got twin sons that are almost eight, so they're starting to play sports. And I see that from parents now almost making and forcing their kids to go out and practice. And, and I don't do that. And I, and that wasn't forced upon me when I was younger. I mean, yeah. I chose to go out into the driveway uh, and work on my game. And, you know, based on my age, I'm 42. It would be watching a Bulls game and watch Michael Jordan do yeah. something. And then I would run right out to the driveway and try and mimic it. Yeah. Not so well, but that was still the goal. And, and I mean, even just the, the imagination it would take to count down backwards from three as if I was going to hit the game winner in the driveway. I mean, those, those are some of my fondest memories and, yeah. and I can still picture them as if they were yesterday. That's over 30 years ago. And yep. it was an absolute blast and it was nothing but me, a ball, a basket and an imagination. And that's one of the things that, you know, I, I'm all embracing of digital and, and even my, my own sons, they have iPads. I mean, I'm all for technology, but sometimes I hope that it's not diluting our ability to have an imagination and to mm. be creative because of all these creative influences around us. They're doing the thinking for us. And, yeah. And those were some of my best times. Yeah. And I think a lot of the imagination that's now being placed into video games and, and that type of technology in particular, where for a young kid who's, who's so creative they probably have those same thoughts when now they're watching LeBron James and Steph Curry, except yep. they can pick up a controller exactly. and simulate that versus I was just, I was in the backyard just like you doing fadeaway shots, trying to be Vince Carter. Exactly. The there and, you go. And then, uh, and then I started doing that in lacrosse with the pals and the gates and, and Kyle Harrison and the likes for you. When you then took that skill and it was transferable on court and you played college ball, what do you think 
the differences between then and now in way of how you were recruited, accepted, and played in college versus what you're seeing now? I was primarily recruited at the D3 level. Uh, Catholic University, which is local to the D.C. area, recruited me very, very heavily out of college. Um, but I wanted to go down south, and I had randomly visited Elon. It was Elon College at the time. It's now Elon University. And I just had made up my mind that that's where I wanted to go. They were actually D2 at the time, and I basically recruited them. You know, for a D2 mm. school in North Carolina back in the 90s, they didn't really have a budget to leave North or South Carolina as far as recruiting. I mean, they weren't going to come to Maryland to recruit someone as a general practice. They just didn't have the recruiting budget. Remember, this isn't Duke or Kentucky. Uh, so I sent them, I think it was a VHS tape at the time, but, but I reached out to them and said, you know, I want to come to school here. I believe I'm good enough to, to add value to your program. Is that something we can work out? And, and I basically went on my own visit down there, got to play pickup with some of their guys and uh, showed the coach some tape. And, and thankfully it, it all worked out. But I was much more proactive in recruiting them than they were recruiting me. So a couple of things. One, who gave you that advice or where did you glean it from to, to be proactive and reach out to them? Uh, and, and then the second was, did you reach out to other schools and face rejection and how did that impact the process for you? Thankfully, I was one for one. Elon was the yeah. school that I wanted to go to. It met all of the criteria. Uh, it was about four or five hours away from here, which I felt would be a nice buffer zone away from my parents, but still close enough that they could come to games and I could get home if I needed to. Uh, it was a few hours south, so the weather was a little nicer than it is here. Um, it was a D2 level, which uh, I felt would be a stretch for me and, and that, you know, if... Uh, Part of it was ego. If mostly D3 schools were recruiting me, I wanted to see if I could go one tier higher. Um, and it, it just seemed like the type of school that I'd want to attend even if I didn't play basketball. Uh, I liked everything else about the school. It was smaller, three or 4,000 students. So I felt, you know, that's bigger than Watkins Mill, but it's not like going to University of Maryland or Penn State where you've got 60,000 uh, people. So it, yep. it really met all of the criteria. And that was the only one that I had really reached out to, and, and thankfully it worked. Yeah, and, and criteria is really important, and I, I feel like uh, school counselors and uh, teachers and parents, often friends, will talk about you know, what's on your list, how do you make your decision, but oftentimes the kids that I run into who are recruits don't really have either a refined or coalesced list, and yeah. they allow the opportunities that are potentially in front of them dictate that. Yeah. Who, who was helping you? figure this out? Really just my parents. Uh, yeah. My mom's from Durham, North Carolina. So my grandmother was down in the South. So we had visited the Durham, greater Durham area, you know, ever since I was little. So I was somewhat familiar with that area, but, but to be honest, some of it was just, was just blind luck. I mean, we stumbled upon the campus. I loved it. It met those criteria. I felt I could play there. The coach took interest. Yeah. So it wasn't this, this big search. And, you know, as I advise kids today, uh, the two things I say is, you know, make sure you, you love the head coach and the coaching staff because, you're going to be spending so much time with mm. them. Make sure you get along with them from a personality standpoint. Um, and then two, go to a school where you'd be happy even if you didn't play the sport that you were going to play. Um, you know, I mean, if you were to get injured or anything like that, would you like going there anyway? Do you like the classes? Do you like the weather? Do you like the, I mean, all of that stuff plays a role in your happiness. And, and I was, you know, I, I think I was lucky because in some aspects I was fairly mature for my age. And then other aspects, I was a complete bonehead like other kids my age. But yeah. in that one, I'm thankful that I kind of had the vision that that's a place that I thought I'd be happy. And I was. Yeah. And I think the pursuit of happiness has been a continual trait for you in, in your post-college career. For sure. As you stuck with your sport, basketball, and figured out since different ways to contribute to not only the community and to the game, 
but also build a business off of it. You've had to iterate so many times. And in the early stages, especially, you were doing a lot of stuff for free. Yes. And, and my guess is advice to, uh, to people who are beginning a career and want to follow their passion, which we hear so frequently uh, and is a bit a- ambiguous. So we'll t- spend a little bit of time there. But building stock, I would say, what are the priorities there? It was less money for you, more network. Yeah. And it's, and everything's about reps with me. It's mm. all about getting reps, you know, whether it's, uh, you trying to refine your lacrosse game or me trying to be, become a more polished speaker. It's about getting quality reps. And, and I view everything that we do in life is merely an attempt. And the goal is to get as many quality attempts as possible. Mm. And every attempt is going to provide some type of feedback. Uh, and it's up to us how we use that feedback. We can use that feedback in a way that serves us and moves us forward, or we can use that feedback in a way that cripples us and moves us back. Uh, and in some way, shape, or form, I mean, this this episode right now is a rep. It's a rep for you as a podcast host, and it's a rep for me as a podcast guest. And obviously, we're both going to do everything we can to serve your listeners and do the best job possible. And this episode will provide some type of feedback, even with you and I, or mm-hmm. maybe even from some of your listeners. And then it's up to us what we choose to do with that feedback. And the neat part is whether this show goes glaringly well or it's a major dud, we can still choose to take that feedback and use it in a way that serves us. And to me, that's the key is, yeah. is finding ways to always move forward. When things go really well, uh, let that validate what you've been doing in your process so you continue doing it. Whenever things don't go well, and that will inevitably happen, find a way to learn from that so you still move forward. So everything's going to keep you going in the right direction. And as you mentioned with that, there'll be constant iterations yep. uh, and you got to constantly evolve. I mean, if I'm the, if I see the world the same at 42 as I did at 32, I just wasted a decade of my life. I mean, things better be changing because the world's changing. So yep. my, my thoughts and, and approach have to change as well. That makes a ton of sense. So you're a coach, you're a storyteller, and you're an influencer. On the influencer side, I like the, uh, the, the similarity between taking a rep. We often hear that in sports and how you approach your career. Um, we often say internally that social media, we haven't used reps, but it's similar to repetitions, but the feedback loop is immediate. Mm-hmm. And that's what we really like about social media. And not to take it uh, in, down an emotional path of, oh, I made a bad post or got a bunch of negative comments, but you learn as you post, you learn as you create. Yes. And the immediacy of, of feedback in social media uh, it, it is, is unlike anything else. You know, it's that old adage, you know, don't, don't climb that ladder and then realize it was leaning against the wrong wall. I, I want to make sure I know exactly where I'm going and that the reps that I'm getting are purposeful reps because that was something I didn't mention before. Um, you know, just to go out in the backyard and start chucking up hook shots, you might think you're getting in reps, but that's right. probably not the purposeful quality reps that are needed to get you where you want to go. And, yep. and I love that you mentioned the feedback loop. That's why coaching is so important. Mm. You know, there's a big difference between me going out and just putting up 100 shots and me being under Coach Jones' watchful eye while I put up those 100 shots where he can immediately tell me if there's not enough arc on the ball or if my pivot foot's dragging or anything like that. Because if you don't have that external feedback loop, if you're not really in tune with what you're doing, you might be practicing the wrong behavior or the wrong movement pattern over and over. And that can be detrimental to your game Yeah, uh, because it takes so many 
perfect reps to unlearn the negative reps that you've been doing. And I've, you know, I've been privy to seeing a lot of basketball guys work out and, you know, guys like Kyle Korver and JJ Redick, uh, they, they don't just finish, they don't finish their workout based on time. They finish their workout based on when they see things starting to go downhill and, and they'll hmm. just, they'll pull the plug on it because they know that they're going to start doing sloppy reps. Um, so they would rather get in 45 minutes of really intense, razor sharp, precise movement than to let that fade for the last 15 to 20 minutes where they're practicing things that they don't want to recall that later in games. And I, I have a lot of respect for that. Now, those are guys that have a real heightened sense of awareness yes. for what they're supposed to do. I don't expect a middle schooler or a, you know, a high school player to have that type of, of acumen, but it's, it's pretty fascinating. So yeah, the, being able to approach it both logically and emotionally, get in purposeful reps and encourage that feedback. Yeah. You know, we, we all should be begging to have people in our life that give us the right type of feedback that we need. Right. And, and it's fascinating. If you ask the average person, do you want to be told if you have spinach in your teeth? They always say, yes, of course. Yeah. I don't want to go through the rest of the day with spinach in my teeth. Tell me. Right. And yet when you give them feedback on anything else, it's like... They put you at arm's length and they give you the Heisman. It's like, th no, this is actually here to help you grow. Right. Feedback's the catalyst to growth. If you don't get feedback, you cannot grow. That is a fact. So I don't know why so many people resist it. Well, I think it's the, the framing of feedback often and the way that someone even presents it, right? So it's a, it's a two-way street. You certainly, as much as I, speaking personally, have practiced treating feedback, like we say internally, as a gift, mm -hmm. right? a real opportunity to improve and grow, which... I think the North Star for many of us is to do that. Uh, it also relies on the person who's delivering that feedback. Great point. And, and if you're coming across traditional coaches, you look at even those that are romanticized, the Bobby Knights of the world that, that were just really constructive in their criticism and sometimes destructive or deconstructive, it, 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 it can be processed differently. Absolutely. And, and people then put up guards. Uh, but one thing that you did mention that I that I want to spend a little bit of time on is is listening, mm -hmm. and that was something that it probably took me into my twenties to to really understand why my coach in college, who was the best coach I've ever worked with, and Dave Petromala, would often tell me I wasn't listening. Mm -hmm. And for me as a kid, and, and and maybe this is again that kind of two way street and in, in way that we could have both been better in communicating, is I always thought, well, of course I'm listening. I, I heard what you told me to do. I just didn't execute it. But, but what I think he was trying, and we've talked about this since, what he was actually saying is you're not processing, yeah. right? And, and, and that is part of listening, right? We can all hear something, but if we don't process it and in sports quick enough, then you miss the chance or you miss the slide or you miss the help and yep. whatever that is. Um, so, so listening has been critical in understanding just as learning or teaching is, there are multiple pieces to it. You have to learn, then process, then do repetitions then kick in to become a better listener. Yes, I love that. And I love the way you connected it to process because hearing is involuntary. Like you heard that. You had no choice but to hear that unless you had something in your ears. Right. But whether or not you're actually taking what I'm saying and as you just brilliantly put processing that and then using that information to your betterment, that's the difference between hearing and listening. And I think that's what, what most coaches mean. And if you're not open to feedback, if you've already made your mind up that you're supposed to go left when he's telling you to go right, then you're not going to process the information because you're not open to it. Yeah. And being open-minded, which in other terms means being coachable, is one of the most important traits of the best that we've ever seen. The, the last thing I'll add, especially for the coaches that are listening, we've talked about it before on the show, but 
two-way street, I had mentioned the way that you're presenting the feedback. The other thing that we can learn from some of the top CEOs in the world, some of the top coaches of Bill Belichick, or Ray Dalio, is, is ask for feedback from your players mm. or from your management team or executive team just as much as you're giving them. Yeah. So these open-loop sessions where you sit down and say, okay, here's some feedback – don't do it during that meeting because you'll probably get something reactive or yep. emotional, but set up time equally for your management team or your players to sit down and give you feedback sessions. That creates this level of comfort and the synergies and culture ultimately you want to get at where it's like, hey, I'm not the, the sole dictator of this yeah. process. I want to learn and improve and iterate just as much as I want you to from me. And it shows that you're humble, but more importantly, yeah. you're modeling the behavior that you want to see from everyone else. So if I'm telling you that you need to be open to my feedback, now I'm going to model that I'm very open to your feedback. And, and I've found, especially as a parent, it's not what I tell my children, it's what I model for my children. Mm. I can tell them to be kind to other people all I want. If I'm disrespectful and rude to other people, that's what they'll end up doing. So mm -hmm. it's so important that we model. Um, and w what I've learned... I've made several changes from my 20s to my 40s, and one of the biggest ones was I used to always take feedback personally, as if, as if my coach was talking to me, Alan Stein, and not to my jersey. And now I don't view any feedback as either positive or negative. I view it completely as neutral, and that it only becomes positive or negative once I, I associate those feelings with it. Mm -hmm. So as I just mentioned, uh, someone could give me traditionally negative feedback about this interview right now, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to let that get me down or cripple me. I'm going to take that feedback and if it's appropriate, I'm going to use it in a way that's going to move me forward. So I don't, if someone were to say that this wasn't a very good interview, I wouldn't take that to demean myself or diminish myself that I'm no good. I would take that as valid, constructive comments that I'm now going to use to get better. And it's, right. that's a skill because it's hard not to take certain things of personal, course. but you know, if you have a coach that's, that's jumping down your throat when you make the wrong play, in theory, if you have empathy, you can step back and go, he's not really mad at me, the person. He's mad because I made a poor decision, which has now affected our team's ability to be successful. And this is something he cares about. And that's why also the empathy thing needs to go both ways. Yep. Coaches have to have the empathy in going, okay, I'm talking to a 17-year-old alpha male right now who has a huge ego, and I just basically undressed him in front of the rest of the team. I can kind of understand why he might be a little off put by that and why he might not be receiving my feedback. And if you can look through the other person's lens, then as you said, you can approach them differently because we all take feedback differently. Yep. You know, you might respond better if the coach calls you out in front of the team or you may respond better if he says, Paul, after practice, can we have a, you know, can we have a short rendezvous in my office? Who knows? And I right. think that's what good coaches do is yep. they figure out what each player will respond to best and then give them the professional courtesy of offering feedback in the way that the player prefers. Yep. Uh, last thing I'll say about empathy, because it certainly is very buzzworthy in, of in today's culture and sports and business and relationships and the likes, is that it, it doesn't always have to be um, prescribed or used in the negative or kind of depressive state or, or circumstantial to something going wrong. Mm -hmm. There is such thing as positive empathy and experiencing someone's success with them. Yeah. And I think it, it, with, with many things in life, we tend to hedge or remember the negative parts or the, or the losses. Those are the ones that, especially in sports, that people harp on. Uh, but as a coach or as a player, 
let's talk about from the lens of the coach. If your player does something well, celebrate with her or him mm. and, and, exp- and allow them to experience that mutual positive empathy, yeah. which I think we should probably do a better job of talking more about or at least acknowledging when people do that well uh, versus hedging for, okay, we won, you made a good play, but let's not screw this up. Right? How often do we hear in sports, you had a great first half, let's not, let, let's not screw this up and yeah. they're going to come back. Right, So you have to exist in both sides. Otherwise, we tend to fatigue with, with a lot of the em- em- empathy that we give when things are going wrong. For sure. And it, you know, it's that, that which gets praised gets repeated. So you want to mm. catch your people doing things right and you want to praise them and call them out in front of the team. Did you guys see the way Paul just set that screen? You see the way he had his feet set and he got so-and-so open to make a shot? Like we want to reward those types of behaviors. Yeah. And I'll even take it one further. Uh, obviously, arrogance is an extremely off-putting characteristic for most people. But when we do something well ourselves, it's okay to celebrate our own little wins, at least internally, because we'll program our ourselves to do that again. So when you do something well, it's okay. You know, it's, I'm not saying you take an entire afternoon off to pat yourself on the back, right. but it's okay to praise yourself even quietly the same way you would a teammate or a coach if they did something well, because now you're reminding yourself, all right, this is the behavior I need to do more often. I had a good morning this morning. I dominated this morning. Now let's make sure that I can make that something that's consistent. Yeah. You've spent time with some of the best basketball players in the world, worked with them directly, uh, many of which, uh, and, and I transition to this, many of which uh, have the same type of characteristics, behaviors, fears, um, um, repetitive um, mistakes that, that we all do. Um, what are a few things and who are some of these athletes that you've worked with that, that have shown you things that have really stood out specifically and, and what were those moments like? I would say the best that I've ever been able to observe they master the basics. They're so committed to doing the basic things over and over. And that's really what's incredible about what they do. You know, if, if Steph Curry, if we turn on the TV tonight and he drops 47 points, everyone will go, wow, that was remarkable what he just did. And it is. But to me, what's more remarkable are the thousands of hours he spent in an empty gym preparing for the ability to score 47 against NBA-level talent. It's those years, those cumulative years that he was in the gym. To me, that's what's incredible. Hmm. Certainly what he does in one night is awesome. And as a fan, I love it. But it, it, and I say this very respectfully, it becomes less awesome and incredible when you see what was put in to making that happen. And the real awesomeness is in the, the unseen hours, as my friend Drew Hanlon coined that term. Yeah. Uh, that's what's to me is what's most impressive. And uh, that's kind of refreshing to me because what these guys are doing are very basic things that you and I are capable of doing. Just most people don't do them. And, and that's something we call, a, I call a performance gap. It's the gap between what we know we're supposed to do and what we actually do. And all of us have performance gaps. But yeah. a guy like a Kobe Bryant or a Stephen Curry or a Paul Rabel or a Tom Brady have narrowed those performance gaps. They know what they're supposed to do and they do it. I mean, if you ever go watch, say, Kobe Bryant work out, I mean, I know he's retired, and you watch what he does, there's nothing magical about it. He's doing basic stuff that all of us are capable of doing. Now, he does it with an unparalleled level of intensity, and he does it with razor-sharp precision. I mean, his, his footwork is, is precise and it's immaculate, but he's not, he's not blindfolded juggling fire or anything. He's doing basic fundamental moves that any player is willing to do. The difference is he does them every day for two hours straight. And, and this isn't an perfectly. assumption. You, you no, went I've out seen, and yeah, actually seen, watched it. I've Tell seen us that his story. Workout. It's one of yeah. my favorite ones. And, and same thing with Curry. I yeah. mean, the, these guys, they're, they're 
perfection to their craft. And I'll tell you the Kobe story, but I had a chance too to watch Ray Allen before a game one oh, time. Ray is you know, unbelievable. Yeah, Kevin Eastman, a good mentor and friend of mine, was an assistant with the Celtics. And I had always heard this legend of Ray Allen's pregame warm-up routine. And yep. he said, well, when we're playing the Wizards, come watch it. And I went three hours early and watched it. And, and there was nothing magical about it. It was as basic as it gets. But it's the consistency and the level of attention to detail and intensity is what made it so remarkable. And, and I think in society, it's easy for us to get distracted by skipping steps and looking for what's hot and flashy and sexy. The basics work. And they always have and they always will. That will never change. And these guys are so committed to the basics. It, it just, it absolutely blows my mind. So how do you, and, and we'll use Kobe as an example, how then as a player from a technique and performance standpoint, if you're spending 75, 80% of your time doing the basics, layups and free throws, is he able to execute so regularly at such a high percentage on the fadeaways and the double hitch moves and all the other stuff that he does thrashing. Well, he, he builds up to those things. So perfect example. Like I said, when I was a kid, I would watch Michael Jordan do a fadeaway jumper and I would run out to my driveway and try and mimic that. Uh, what I was making the huge mistake of, I was watching the finished product of Michael Jordan doing that. And I, I was skipping all of the steps that it took to do that. I mean, if you can't shoot a regular balanced jump shot, you have no business shooting a fadeaway. Yeah. So first of all, you have to build this thing like a house brick by brick. And of course, as many teenagers do, I was skipping many of the steps. Yep. I was trying to, you know, I was trying to start on the fifth rung of the ladder instead of starting at the bottom. And that was something when I've, when I've had a chance to watch Kobe work out, and this was years ago, he builds from that. He makes sure that his footwork with his initial move out of triple threat is perfect first for hundreds and hundreds of reps. And then he adds a spin move to that. And he does that for hundreds and hundreds of reps. And then he adds the turn to the basket and then the and it's it's very sequential it's kind of you know whole part whole type of approach um and then of course this is a private workout but then he'll make sure that he's doing that against live defense and live competition in other areas in practice so it's very systematic but the the point is he's doing things that we're capable of doing yeah but how many people have the the grit and the fortitude to go in and do the boring stuff over and over everybody wants to shoot the fadeaway who wants to go in there and just take a jab step for a hundred reps in a row. Hardly yep. anybody wants to do very it. Very few. Yeah, very few. It's one of the conflicts that we run into as operators and instructors in, in lacrosse is that you get to an event somewhere across the country, you're meeting a couple hundred kids for the first time. They're really excited. They want to see you do the craziest move that they saw on YouTube. Yep. And the first thing we talk about is stick work mm. and their shoulder shrug of in course. a way. And cause they've done stick work and they've been taught that before. And uh, I'm always challenging myself to refine my message. And more recently, I've said, because logically, this makes sense to me, is that every pass is, is, is getting a rep in your shot. Because mm. your shot is basically a, a harder, harder version pass. of your pass. Um, and, and, and people think, well, once I have reached a level of somewhat consistent success with a pass, and you could say the same thing in basketball, a chess pass or a bounce pass, then it's time to move on. But it sounds to me like the secret sauce for success is actually leaning in and going longer on those fundamentals, the stuff that you feel like you can do well mm-hmm. and continue to press play on that. And yeah. get a little bit better, slightly better, slightly better. It's so hard not to get bored with the mundane. I mean, yeah. to be honest, I, if I'm putting myself back when I was a player, the thought of just doing 100 jab steps in a row, not moving anywhere, not even dribbling, certainly not shooting, is kind of monotonous and boring. Yep. But that's what needs to be done to be able to, 
to do things at the level that these guys have. And, and what I find fascinating, now certainly uh, to play at the professional sport level, you have the athleticism component. I mean, I'm, I would never argue that, that Kobe wasn't born with some genetic predispositions that have allowed him to become yep. as great as he was. But if we start talking about business or leadership or some of these other areas, then the athleticism is not near as important. So right. you can still apply these principles to if you're, if you're in sales or if you're a, an entrepreneur, you can still prov you know, use these principles of sticking to the basics and being relentless about them. Yep. I mean, if I'm trying to get more speaking gigs, I mean, I know what I need to do is be proactive. I need to target who I want my audience to be. I need to do some research and start reaching out to those folks. Are you telling me right now that if I reached out to 500 local companies about a speaking gig that I'm not going to land a handful of them? Of course I will. I mean, yep. that's, it's mathematically impossible for me not to. So we all know that, yet how come very few people do that? Right. Why aren't people doing the things that we know need to be done? And these things are basic. You don't need to have, I mean, you don't need to be born with any tools to scout out your target audience and then go after them. Yeah. And yet people don't do it. And that's that knowledge gap that we all have. And, you know, for me, the secret to performing at a higher level is closing that gap. And we have them in different areas. You know, uh, let's use health and fitness as an example. Most people know what foods they're supposed to eat. Mm -hmm. Most people know how much sleep they're supposed to get. And most people know what they should do for workouts. Yet lots of people don't do those things. So knowledge isn't the problem. It's the execution that's the problem. Yep. And we can look at relationships. We can look at finances. We can look at any area. And the highest performers in the world have found ways to really narrow and mitigate these performance gaps. Yep. When you look at a, an athlete performing long professionally, you have three components. You have their skill. Mm -hmm. You have their physiological capability. And then your psychology. Right? And your skill and psychology as you get older tend to improve. Yep as your physiological behavior tends to deteriorate. But what we found in studies is those that uh, continue to improve their skill work and then gain the psychological experience through work with a sports psychologist, but also through the experience that you get through game repetitions, you end up having an athlete that's older that can beat the young athlete to the ball yeah. because they can anticipate it sooner Absolutely. than the young athlete can react to it. And, and that is... I guess part two of this secret sauce that we started with on skill. And have you seen that more oh, from some of your clients? Absolutely. Without others? question. I mean, we talk about the term basketball IQ, the higher your basketball IQ, the more quote unquote athletic you appear on the mm. court. Cause as you just said, you, you're one step ahead. Now you're playing chess. You, you, you can anticipate what's going to happen, you know, and it's having like Ray a, Allen. It, exactly. I mean, the, the, there's a long list. I mean, even from guys like, uh, I mean, even Larry Bird, I yep. mean, athletically speaking, Larry Bird wasn't the same caliber player of a lot of the other guys, but his basketball IQ was so high that if you know where the ball is going to bounce 0.3 seconds before the next guy does, it doesn't matter if he's faster, you're still going to get the ball. So mm. without question, but that's why you take a Tom Brady or a Kobe Bryant or a Tim Duncan. Duncan, and, and they've been able to improve their psychology and their skill over time. See, when you find players that rest on the athleticism side and they just fall to their, their talents and use that as a crutch, one day that crutch is going to go away and now you're stuck. I mean, Jordan was infamous for continuing to grow his game. And even when yeah. he was playing his, after his second retirement, I mean, he, he still, his IQ and understanding of the game made him competitive, even though he wasn't able to do quite what he could do before athletically. Yep. So we've addressed a lot of the individuals that you've worked with and your process uh, growing to the point of where you are in your career. You also speak to organizations and teams on winning habits. Yes. So there's the individual performance and the responsibility that, that you and I have to improve for the greater good of the team and our place within the team. 
But then at a more macro level, how do you develop team culture and winning habits and what are some of the best organizations doing and what is the advice that you're giving to others that want to become the next best group? I love the way that you just broke that down because it is the approach I use. First, it starts with the individual because the very first thing you can do to improve your team is to improve yourself. That's step number one. And then it's being able to apply that to the betterment of everyone else. Can you make the person to your right and to your left better? And, you know, I've always kind of looked at it almost as an obligation that, that my career path has been, I've been very fortunate to be able to have a peek behind the curtain with some of these elite players and teams. And I know that most of the organizations I speak to now, they're not privy to that. So I almost feel obligated to share with them what it is that I learned and mm. what it is that I've been able to observe and see, because I know that those things will apply. Uh, when we look at the organizational level, uh, we're going to look at leadership, we're going to look at cohesion uh, or teamwork. We're going to look at accountability. And all of these things are a healthy cocktail of what most people call culture. And, and culture is incredibly important. I mean, the, the Patriots don't win by accident. Right. They don't win. I mean, there's nothing haphazard about that. They win because uh, they have an identity. They have extremely high standards. They police each other and hold each other accountable to live those standards every single day. And then ultimately, that's what, what drives results. And it's no different with a business than it would be with a sports team. And, and to me, I get so much, I have so much fun looking at the crossover and parallel between business and sport. It's just fascinating to me. And there's no doubt. Now he may be missing some of the technical expertise, but I'm a diehard Duke fan. If coach K took over a fortune 500 company, as long as he had one of his right-hand people that knew the technical aspects of the business, I have zero doubt that that, that company would flourish extremely well because he understands all of these different components and, and in many cases, some of the best CEOs could also coach a team, oh, again, yeah. if you had someone that taught them the nuances of the game. I don't ever want to discredit yep. how important they the X's find and O's are. chief operating officer. Yes, without question. But there's so much parallel between the two. Yep. So we look at Coach K, we look at Bill Belichick, other phenomenal CEOs like a Jeff Weiner or formerly in that company, a Reed Hoffman or a Sheryl Sandberg and, and Mark Zuckerberg. You've also said that, that player-led teams – are, are increasingly becoming more valuable and in some cases in sports at least more valuable than having a coach or maybe that's the dynamic where you have the coach that has built the culture yeah. year over year but you got to have your leaders that are on the court that are not only executing and, and creating that bridge from the rest of the team to the coach but are ultimately making the decisions on the floor without question you you need everyone on your team or in your organization to view themselves as a leader and and I simply define a leader as someone that you know has a positive impact on others that raises the performance of other people and and sometimes I think people get caught into titles that, you know, I'm the 15th man on the team and Mike Jones is the head coach. So he's the leader. No, he's not the leader. He's a leader. And we need the entire team to be leaders. And just because you're the 15th man on DeMatha basketball, uh, on the DeMatha basketball program doesn't mean that you don't have the right or obligation to lead uh, in every way, shape or form. And, and I found that the most successful teams are the ones where the coach is certainly leading by example and modeling, but they empower everyone else around them to lead as well. And, you know, a great example, I believe it was last season when Steve Kerr went out with the back injury and uh, Luke Walton took over and the Warriors didn't skip a beat. I mean, I think they won 24 or 26 yeah. in a row. It was incredible. And the novice would go, I guess Steve Kerr's not that good of a coach because if he steps out, anybody can step in and coach this group. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of, nothing could be further from the truth. He is such a tremendous coach that he's empowered the entire nucleus around him to keep this thing going when he steps out. And 
to me, that, that doesn't make him replaceable at all. That makes him irreplaceable, that he's able to create the type of identity and standards and cultures necessary for this thing to keep going. And, and I think the best way to define culture is how does your team act when the head coach isn't there? You know, your business, if the CEO takes off for a week, is there any dip in the business? Is there any dip in productivity? Is there any dip in efficiency? Is there any dip in the culture? And if the answer is no, you have a really strong culture. And that is a testament to the leader, uh, not the other way around, which I think a lot of people, they, they get backwards. Wow, it's fascinating. I wonder if there are really strategic tactics that coaches can put in place to kind of simulate that or, or check in a way to see. And, and I suppose... You know, I look, again, look at what Johns Hopkins has done when I was there and, and even what Coach Petromala is doing now. I guess a way to kind of check to see if the organization is in line and the players are doing is, is be able to monitor, you know, their practices away from your practice. And, mm-hmm. and kind of going back to the Kobe Bryant is now the quarter center, which is our, you know, our, our lacrosse-specific athletic building that sits over top of Homewood Field, wasn't there when I was. But... I think there are a number of other sports that coaches' offices oversee the field, so they can always take a look and see who's out there practicing and the likes. But and, and if we think about it, there's lots of things that are understandable. It doesn't mean they're acceptable. When you get to the lower, when you're talking about high school students, I mean, they're not fully emotionally developed. You're talking about teenagers. So it's a little more understandable that a DeMatha basketball practice would not be as effective if Coach Jones and the whole staff wasn't there. But I mean, if you're a CEO listening to this right now and you think, I can't go on vacation, because this whole thing might crumble while I'm gone, that's a problem. That is a major red flag. And it it starts with the leadership. So you need to start asking yourself, what can be done to make this framework and foundation stronger so that I could leave for two or three days and I know for a fact this thing is a a well-tuned machine. And that's... That's really, really important. But I've talked to a lot of business leaders that they don't feel that comfortable. They'd be worried that if they're yeah. not there. And that, that's a, a systemic problem that should be addressed without question. Yeah, and that's great advice and a barometer for many of us to think about as we continue to build our culture with our companies and with our sports teams. I do want to ask you a question since you brought up the kind of the high schooler or middle schooler that is a high achiever striving to be such. Uh, don't have as much on the line at that age, and they're and they're less mature than say a professional athlete or or a coach of a professional team that is so driven, representing really the one percent of the one percent. Um, and we've often, just as a side note, con- continue to check ourselves around sport for fun and relaxing versus always driving home improvement, improvement, improvement. Nevertheless, the question is. And, and, I've, and I've sat down with even college kids at, at the highest level in lacrosse, so they just go, hey, it's, it's, the, it's the middle of April, and we've been practicing since January. Playoffs are another month away. I'm getting a little bit fatigued. We're approaching midterms, and we have another practice at 3 o'clock. In these moments... You know, I, I know what our North Star is, Paul. I, we want to win a championship. But in these moments, how do you get yourself excited? First and foremost, you always have to go back to your why. I mean, that's like a Simon Sinek classic. But, like, why do you love to play? What is it about basketball that you love? Try to find that mm. spot because, yeah, there's, there's nothing – 
romantic or fun about, you know, running sprints at the end of practice in February, but you got to kind of go back to that why. And then every player needs to have the awareness to know what fills their bucket. What, what actually gets you charged up? What, what motivates you? And this is where I think the coach player relationship is so important because the coach needs to be able to sense these things. I know we were talking about empathy earlier, but a coach needs to go, okay, I know going into February practices, these are the dog days, man. These are the tough ones. So what are some things that I can do to make these practices more engaging or more enjoyable? Um, you know, is there, can we, first of all, can we shorten them? Uh, Mike Jones does a brilliant job of shortening mm. practices. I mean, in practices in November are close to two hours. Practices in February are down to about 60 minutes because he only wants to do what's necessary for the team to perform at the highest level. He doesn't want to put any extra miles on their car. So he keeps everything very succinct. Uh, and same thing from the players. You know, this is when, if you have that relationship, is there a certain shooting drill that the team loves to do? Well, let's pepper that into the practice because that might add some extra excitement and, and some engagement into practice. So it's really, it's a combination of the players and coaches working together, both of them being honest with each other and saying, look, nobody wants to be in the gym in February, but this is a requirement for us to reach our goal of winning this championship. So let's find a way to make this practice and fun, engaging, but most certainly productive to get us a little bit closer to that. And, and I think if, if both groups meet in the middle, practice is shorter, you've got some fun stuff peppered in, you're doing what you need to do, then, then I think players can, can perform at a, at a pretty high level. Yeah, I love that. There's practical advice. There's asking yourself the why, what's important to me, uh, and, and frankly, it's, it's fascinating. We're talking about sports and improvement, but most of what we're harping on are those soft skills. Mm -hmm. uh, and then even the hard skills in sports in particular go back to the fundamentals and the basics and, and all that advice. There's so much advice packed into this conversation. I'm excited to listen back to it and, and interested in everyone's feedback as, as we started this and, show. And, and we'll take it and move it forward. The, the, the last thing that I, that I want to hear from you, where are you gathering most of or some of the most meaningful content and resources from and and as such what can you recommend us to do in in way of Sure. following you and, and hearing more. Well, you know, I, for the longest time, I was a voracious reader and I was consuming books at a, at a pretty rapid pace. And about two years ago, I made the slight shift to become a voracious podcast listener. So now yeah. I'm devouring podcasts on the regular, certainly this show being one. Um, but I've got a main rotation of probably 10 to 12 podcasts that I listen to regularly. And I feel as long as I'm consuming some type of knowledge, whether it's in written form or audio forms, probably not as important at this stage. Um, so I'm constantly trying to take in and be mentored by people that I might not have an opportunity to meet. You know, I'm, I'm thankful to have a relationship with you. I haven't met Tim Ferriss yet, but that's somebody that I can still pull wisdom from through his books and his podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I've got, I mean, a laundry list uh, of people that I would consider mentors that have poured into me that, that I'll never be able to repay them. So all I can do is send the elevator back down and try to help somebody else and mentor them. And, and, and I think you'll appreciate this. I was at a retreat this past summer and I had a chance to meet Frank Shamrock, who was one of the UFC MMA, like mm -hmm. he put them on the map, him and his brother Ken back in yep. the 90s. I mean, dude was an assassin back in the day. Yep. One of the nicest, most gentle and generous men I've ever met. And he taught me something that's really reshaped my perspective. And he calls it the plus equal minus system. And he said, all of us at any given moment should have three people in our life. One person that we establish is a plus. They're somebody that would basically be a mentor to us. They're, they're a few years down the path that we're trying to follow and they can pour back into us and help us sidestep some 
some of the landmines that maybe they stepped on. So you need to establish who that person is. Then you need to have an equal, somebody that you consider a peer. Um, and, and this can be at any stage in your life, but this is somebody uh, that you can commiserate when things are tough. You can share and joint you know, wins and successes, but it's someone that's going through the same things in life that you are. Again, this could be professionally, someone that's doing the same stuff from a business standpoint you are, or it could be personally. If you're newly married or you just had kids, having an equal that's doing the same thing can be a tremendous help. Hmm. And then the minus, and I don't say minus in a diminishing way, is the person that you would mentor them. So you, mm. this is when you are reaching the hand down to pick somebody else up. And what, what I found personally, and, and Frank told me that I would find this, I actually learned the most from the person that I mentor because in order to mentor someone else, you got to know your stuff. You got to know your message, your philosophy, your convictions. And when you teach somebody else to do it, you have a much stronger ownership of what it is that you believe. But if you can kind of keep these three angles in your life at all times and, and they'll change. I'm not saying that if, yep. if you sign up for someone as a mentor, that they're committed to you for 40 years, you might change three or four people in a year, but just always have someone that's ahead of you next to you and a little bit behind you. And you'll keep iterating and evolving and growing, which is kind of how we started the conversation. And I, I found that to be an incredibly valuable tool. Uh, it's fascinating. It resonated with me with regard to the way that I process learning and how I try to uh, learn myself, but I've articulated this to others. And it's a three-part system. And I think our school system does two of it pretty well. And so you mentioned reading and listening as ways that we attain new knowledge. And so that has to take place. You, you've been seeing me scribble down notes. Mm -hmm. you know, Partly because of learning differences that I grew up with and, and had to figure that, okay, this was going to be a way for me to not only understand what I'm being taught right now, but then be able to revisit it on mm -hmm. paper. But I found that my learning processes, whether I read or listen, it comes through. Then I write it down. That's step two. Step three is then teaching it to someone else. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And, and that's where you close that loop or come full circle is that, you know, otherwise I feel like I store it in short term. Mm-hmm. But I'm hearing, I'm reading, I write it down. And then that moment of teaching or that minus, as you mentioned, where you're mentoring, mm -hmm. that is some of the most fulfilling work, but also really helps solidify yes. that is of what we're processing. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so a lot of this has taken place today and, and it's been a great experience. I, I love uh, podcasting because we get the benefit of recording this and sharing this with others and then yes. listening it back. But this conversation and the others that we've had before have always been really meaningful. And every time we have this type of work in front of us and talk it through, it's, it's, a, it's a plus for me. So thanks. Absolutely. Likewise. I appreciate you, brother. If you enjoyed Alan and my conversation, please be sure to let us know talk on social media. My Twitter handle is at Paul Rabel. His is at Alan Stein Jr. 1L. Be the first to listen to next week's episode as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one -on -one conversation with NBA star Jeremy Lin. Jeremy just launched his daily vlog on his YouTube channel, by the way. He's over in Beijing. We talk about all of the above on our podcast together. His episode and many more are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. Also, please hit subscribe when you find us. Much gratitude for doing so. There's a shortcut to our show notes. Visit studentuppodcast.com. And again, enjoy the NBA Finals, everyone. Have a great week.